You are listening to Are We There Yet? The podcast about the intersection of sustainability, technology, and communication. I'm Jamie Hardy. And I'm Sonia Ernst. And today we welcome Professor Ryan Adams, an influential voice in machine learning, AI, and computational statistics R&D. Co-founder of WetLab, a machine learning startup quickly acquired by Twitter in 2015, and founding co-host of the machine learning podcast Talking Machines, his career includes time at Harvard, Twitter, and Google Brain. Now a professor at Princeton University, he has many groundbreaking scientific publications under his belt, and we hope to dig into his brain mercilessly today. Welcome, Ryan. Thanks for having me. Sure. So I'd like to start with a question right at the base of your work. Can you describe what you've done with Bayesian inference and how it relates to AI in a nutshell? Sure. So Bayesian inference largely is about reasoning about uncertainty. And if you think about it, anything intelligent is reasoning under uncertainty all the time. You know, we always have limited information uh, about the world around us based on, you know, what we can sense nearby. Uh, We don't sort of know everything we need to know in order to make any given decision. And also the world is a noisy and uncertain place. And so Making decisions in the presence of uncertainty is, is something that, that we have to do as people and that any intelligent system is going to need to do as well. Bayesian probability is a nice way to reason about uncertainty. And it's kind of a funny thing because essentially what it does is it uses probability to try to capture the idea of what you know and what you don't know. So rather than saying the probability distributions are just about randomness in the world, it's using probability to also represent the state of your knowledge or the state of your ignorance. And so when we perform Bayesian inference, we're doing two kinds of things. We're modeling the world in some interesting way and trying to kind of reason about things we can't see directly and can't observe. And we're also trying to figure out how to turn the crank on that kind of computation and turn those into useful predictions and decisions that account for this ignorance. So you base this sort of um, science on neural networks based on the human brain or animal brain, as I understand it. What don't we know about neural networks, physical neural networks in brains, and what can they still surprise us with? That's a great question. So neural networks are just one part of what machine learning is about, and it's sort of an orthogonal idea relative to something like Bayesian reasoning. Bayesian reasoning posits a model. The model could be a neural network, but doesn't have to be. What neural networks really are from the point of view of machine learning and computer science is they're really good function approximators. So If you want to make a prediction or sort of reason about some function that you don't know, and and here a function can capture a lot of uh, different kinds of ideas. So that can be a function that goes from the pixels of an image to the label of whether or not something's a dog or a cat, or it could be something that goes from the state of the world to whether or not a robot should turn left or turn right. So here, when I say function, I mean something very broad. And when we want to use functions to model the world and make decisions, we really would like a very flexible class in order to do that. That's what makes neural networks appealing, is that it's a very, very rich space of functions that can capture all kinds of structure in the world, and that in some ways are straightforward to train using modern computational tools. Now, the relationship between that and natural neural networks is pretty weak. So actual neurons are very, very complicated objects with a rich biophysics that we don't completely understand. And there are some coarse screen similarities in the sense that neurons connect to each other and they weight signals between each other in different ways. But there's not even a single kind of neuron in the brain, right? There's all kinds of different kinds that have different roles. And we're still trying to figure out what these things do and how they lead to intelligent systems. So I think we use, uh, you know, the phrase neural networks 
in machine learning it goes back a long way. And I think initially when people came up with these ideas, we knew less about the brain than we do now. Um, and maybe that, that analogy made more sense. It's a big connected network of things. But I think the utility of, of modern neural networks for solving problems in AI uh, doesn't have to do with their biological plausibility. It has to do with their flexibility and the way that we can use them to model the world. So human networks, neural networks can be changed or altered by trauma. Would you say that something like that could happen in AI? Yeah, I think it's an interesting question. I mean, trauma is a kind of learning, right? And adaptation to stimuli. That's what we do when we try to build systems as well as have them adapt to stimulus. So it's difficult to think through exactly what trauma would mean to, uh, you know, would, would correspond to in the, the kind of artificial context. But certainly they're learning from sort of both positive and negative signals. Mm -hmm. And can AI sort of tell the difference between what might be positive or negative without us telling it? Well, generally speaking, the positive versus negative is how we train the neural networks. We ask a neural network to make a prediction, say, or make a decision, and sometimes the outcome is what we want, sometimes it's not what we want. And when it does what we want, then we adapt its weights, you know, its parameters in order to do more of that. And when it doesn't do what we want, then we try to move its weights in a way to make that sort of bad outcome less likely. Ryan, how do we make a decision what is right and what is wrong? Um, you say it does what we want or it does not do what we want. When it does what we want, we're teaching it, it is the right thing to do, which means we're deciding what is the right thing to do. Yeah. So 99% of the time that corresponds to giving the right label to something. So in the case of like visual object recognition, which is a sort of a very common use case for these kinds of things, there's some ground truth label that a human has provided about say what an image is. And if it gets it right, so it's an image of a cat and the neural network says cat, then that's it doing it right. If it says horse, then that's it doing it wrong. In more sophisticated decision-making contexts, we have sort of reward functions that try to represent the sort of quality of the solution that the agent came up with to solve some problem. And when it sort of does more of the right thing that we want, then we consider that a reward. But if it does less of what we want, then that could be a, a negative reward. So an example where we might do this kind of thing would be trying to, say, design some new molecule. Maybe there's some drug target that we're trying to build a molecule for, and different molecules that it generates succeed in different ways in, say, binding to that target. And so we can treat that binding as a, as a reward signal and reward it for doing a better job of generating good molecules. It's important not to anthropomorphize these concepts too much. We use the word, you know, I use the phrase reward it, but what I really mean is that we have a score function and we're trying to find the gradient of that score function so that it's kind of moving through this space of possible functions towards ones that generate the right kind of objects. So it doesn't like candy <laughs> as a reward. It, sorry, it doesn't like candy? Is that what yeah, you said? Yeah, as the reward. <laughs> that's right. That's right. So then if it goes further, if you think further in this direction and consider some ethical problems, what that would look like? Well, I think it's important to remember that these systems encode whatever human biases go into the labels or into those rewards. So if you encode ethical problems into your reward, that's what you'll get. Which means as we evolve, as we develop these technologies, we're also integrating all of our conscious or subconscious bias into them. That's exactly right. So for example, very large language models, you know, they're downloading 
information off the internet, right? And the internet represents all the kinds of biases and terrible behavior and good behavior and, and so on, information that exists out there. And so if we just dump all of that into a big language model, it's going to represent all of the good and all of the bad. What do you see some of the risks resulting out of that? Oh, there's tons of risks associated with this, right? Precisely because a lot of the, you know, a lot of the worst behavior that we see in text is happening on the internet, right? And so we need to find ways to, or maybe a better way to put it is to say that when we build one of these systems, we want it to be the best versions of ourselves, right? Not the worst versions of ourselves. And on the internet, that's where you find the worst versions of people, not the best, right? And so part of the challenge here is curating data and then also figuring out ways to interrogate the things that we build to explore whether or not they've captured biases that we're not interested in. So I, I have to go back to what just something you said, uh, the worst version of ourselves versus the, the best version of ourselves, and, and we find the worst version of ourselves on the internet. I believe that each one of us is trying to show the best version of ourselves. And so just simply by saying the worst version of ourselves, we are judging or putting a label on someone's behavior, and therefore it's a bias whether we want it or not. No, I, I think that's reasonable. Here, what I mean is internet trolls, right? Do we want language models to replicate all the things that people say on Reddit or all the things that people say in YouTube comments? Anonymity causes people to say things that they would never say in real, you know, in person. And I don't think we want automated language models repeating those statements in general. So that is something that I find fascinating, that people would say things online in writing that they otherwise would not say if they meet someone in, in real life. Why is that? <laughs> you know, it's a, I'm not qualified to answer that question. <laughs> uh, but I think it, there's a kind of anonymity that happens on both sides. There's anonymity of the person saying it and a kind of loss of personhood of the person on the other side, right, who reads it. You know, somebody posts some YouTube video or a tweet or something, right, and somehow by making that content, they lose some humanity to the people who consume it in some strange way that I think we don't really understand. And then someone else who knows they can be faceless and nameless can, you know, then kind of responds to that in, in this often in this very profound, this profound way. Whereas if they were in person, they would both be human, right? There. And that's not to say that there aren't people who behave poorly in person also, but it does seem like there are people who will say things online that they, that, that, and, and they're, they're a completely different person um, in real life. And you have a machine learning startup. You started a company and sold to Twitter, which has been described as a cesspool of human behavior, poor human behavior. Did you have any inner conflict in bringing machine learning to Twitter in that way and how they chose to use it? That's a great question. I would say that Twitter's reputation as a cesspool has, it's always had trolls and stuff on it, to be sure. But I would say that in 2015, we looked at it perhaps less negatively than we, uh, than we do now. And at the time, you know, there are different things that happen on Twitter in terms of, of journalism and activism and things that didn't happen anywhere else. And they happened in real time. And so certainly internally at Twitter, people really want the best of this, right? And, and are excited about all the positive ways it can do things. And I think we viewed machine learning as an interesting way to enable the best parts of this. How do we automatically help people find the good content? How do we help people connect with communities that are exciting? How do we sort of really highlight the most exciting things in the ways that it, and, and the ways that it's really positive? And to some degree, how can we make it less susceptible to things like misinformation and bad behavior? 
Do you think it has been successful? I don't. Why not? For one thing, it's a very, very, very hard problem. <laughs> it's a fascinating platform for many, many, many different communities that have this extremely long tail. But I think one thing you realize rapidly is that the amount of content in any given tweet, certainly in the old days when tweets were short, uh, is, is very limited. And so it's very hard to reason often based purely on content on what, uh, on what a tweet is even about at all. That is to say the larger context is extremely important. An example might be during a football game, somebody might just send a one word tweet that's, you know, a curse word, right? Whenever the, the other team scores a touchdown, right? It's like, how do we contextualize that? Is that just, is that bad behavior? Is that a thing that, that we should be unhappy about? Is it, uh, like, what does that even mean? What is it referring to? And this happens all the time, right? Where the sort of current cultural context, which could be a very narrow temporal window, completely informs what people are, how people are using this platform. Trying to tackle things like misinformation also relies on the idea that there's some notion of ground truth. But again, in a real-time platform, that's not necessarily something that you can necessarily evaluate in an automated way in any kind of, on any kind of reasonable timescale. So if you can do something, if you could do it again, what would you do differently? Oh, that's a good question. There's, there's things that I would, uh, you know, knowing what I know now, I might change personally about the way I interacted, you know, with the organization, say, or decisions I made and things I prioritized. But the nature of these things is you make the best decisions with the information available to you. And it, it's, and so, uh, I made mistakes, but a lot of those mistakes were due to just sort of, uh, you know, lack of foresight in terms of would I, you know, would I sell the company to Twitter today? I think I would not. It's a very different place with a different set of stakeholders, let's say, and different attitudes towards what it means to get things right. And so if I was building that company today, I probably would not sell it to Twitter. It makes me go back to what we just spoke about, what is wrong and what is right. And sometimes things look right at one moment and at a different time, they don't anymore. Certainly. We're inevitably a product of our times. What are finals like now with AI, with ChatGPT? What are finals like now? Yeah, good segue. Um, my final is, uh, is still an in-person paper pencil final. And so things like ChatGPT are not immediately relevant, at least from the point of view of using them kind of uh, during the exam. Now, people may well use them to prepare for the exam, but that's great, right? That's the thing that, that I, I'm, I'm happy about. I think where things are more delicate is when uh, you have things like take-home exams or a final essay or some kind of thing where you would have access to that tool while actually doing the thing on which it'll be assessed. And there, you know, we rely heavily on course policies and things like Princeton's honor code. So for me, the act of writing is almost um, more important than the product that I produce. And so when I would use something like AI-assisted chat to get to the answer... I find that I lose a little bit of what I was seeking to gain from writing. So how do you see that in terms of um, students' actual knowledge gain affecting the future of the world? I don't know the answer to this, but I feel like your experience mirrors my own. So somebody said to me that the thing that ChatGPT, for example, is really good at is producing the first drafts of things. And I think that's true for things that don't require a lot of creativity or structure or originality that is pretty good at banging out something really boring. <laughs> but uh, as you say, that process of generating text the first time is as important as the final product and the, the process of doing that and, and the reasoning that you do to come to, to decide what you end up putting down. 
And if you use a tool like this, then you don't you don't go through that process. And, and somehow it seems like the thing you arrive at is going to be less original and less creative. And so I think there is something lost if you lean heavily on this instead of instead of going through your own process. That's not to say that it doesn't have utility. It can be helpful for rephrasing things. It can and it can be and often we're writing things that don't need creativity and originality. But I I think there is a balance here that's a lot like thinking about learning arithmetic in elementary school. We all use calculators. Each one of us has a calculator on our person right now, right? That is to say that our, our phones are capable of doing all kinds of computation for us very easily. Nevertheless, we still feel like it's valuable to be able to do that arithmetic yourself because somehow the process of reasoning through it and, the, and, and coming to understand the way that these things happen is a fundamental skill independent of whether or not you'll have a calculator. I think writing's the same way. ChatGPT is kind of like a calculator and it's useful and it's a tool that later in life and when you're writing and doing things that, that is occasionally the right thing to do. But somehow if you never learned to do arithmetic and always depended on using a calculator, you would not be as successful. You wouldn't be able to think the same thoughts. You wouldn't be able to achieve the same outcomes. And so we're always going to need to learn to write independently of these things. And I hope we can create educational environments where the students are incentivized to do that. When you think of acquiring that skill, understanding the basics, no matter what topic it is about, computer science, let's say, understanding the basics, that will be lost with artificial intelligence because at some point we don't have to understand the basics. We can just build onto these things. How is that going to influence humanity in your mind? I guess I'm not sure I agree with that. I mean, there's plenty of technologies I mean, I think the calculator being a great example, uh, you still learn math. Kids still learn math today. They learn the basics. They learn the fundamentals, even though there are AI tools that enable them to, uh, to do those computations. The difference between a calculator and artificial intelligence is not that extreme. It's a tool. You can ask it questions. It gives you answers. And these are questions that just a few years ago, there wasn't an automated way to answer that involved human computation. But nevertheless, that foundational reasoning is still important. And I think that's going to be true in a world with AI as well. I, I don't anticipate that people will suddenly stop learning foundational knowledge because of it. People will still take courses and lots of different things, even if they could look all that information up on Wikipedia, right? Um, I don't really see a world where AI, at least on the trajectory it's on, really replaces f like foundational knowledge for, uh, for most people. And where do you see artificial intelligence influence the future of education or how we collaborate or how we work together. The thing I'm excited about in thinking about AI for education is in personalized education. You know, right now, education is relatively standardized. This can be good because it helps reduce things like inequality and helps that we have sort of, uh, sort of uniform quality in, in different geographic areas and across different socioeconomic strata. But in fact, people do learn better in different ways. Each of us has a way that we can absorb information, some context that we bring. Some people are visual, some people are geometric, some people really uh, are very auditory. Everyone has different modalities and different existing knowledge that they can connect things to. And so I think there's an exciting potential world in which artificial intelligence builds individualized models for things you know and the kind of knowledge that is interestingly sort of on the border uh, of things that you could uh, that you could now learn 
and kind of builds curriculum for you personally as though you have your own tutor. That's not a crazy thing to expect to happen on an, on an interesting timescale, particularly for relatively structured kinds of knowledge. And I think we see this already in tools that we don't necessarily call AI, but what they do behind the scenes is more or less indistinguishable. So I think Duolingo is an example of this for language learning, where it has a pretty good model for what you know and what you don't know and presents to you content to learn that is kind of right on the boundary, that is kind of high value things where you could know this, uh, you, you have the requisite knowledge to be able to acquire this new skill, but it's not too hard or too easy. And being able to do that for lots of different topics would be, would be very exciting. So, so Ryan, I, um, it is my understanding that artificial intelligence did not start as, um, okay, let us develop artificial intelligence that is going to mimic humans. It was more introduced as a byproduct of our desire to create a robot that would be like humans. And then once we had something, we wanted it to be smart and collaborate with us in some way. And that's how we started looking into artificial intelligence as a byproduct of something else. How did we get started here? So I think the, you know, there was the sort of very first conference on artificial intelligence that I think happened in the 50s. But in a fundamental way, this is just automation. And automation has been something that we've wanted for a very long time. Whether you're talking about like, windmills or oxen to pull your plow. And so I think this sort of long arc of trying to automate more and more things, AI is just a kind of a natural extension of that. The interesting thing and the the challenge of the tools we've always been building is how do we make them infer more of what we want and do more of um, sort of do what we meant and not what we said, right? And so part of the interesting things about, for example, these language models is that it does seem that it's able to perform, it does seem that they're often able to perform more inference about what your intent is. I think robots are an interesting instance of this. And there's a, another sort of long conversation about the role of embodiment in intelligence. You know, I'm of the opinion that embodiment is, is very important for intelligence. But I think what it boils down to is when we think of automation, you know, a lot of the things we want automated are things in the real world that were, in some sense, designed in a sort of anthropocentric way, right? Uh, we have doorknobs and coffee cups and things, right, <laughs> that we would like to be manipulated in an automated way. For that to work, there's a sense in which the kind of embodied intelligence that we build kind of has to be anthropomorphic, simply because our world is designed for people. And so I don't view AI as sort of distinct from that necessarily. And, and I don't view AI and robotics as being distinct from other kinds of tools that we've been trying to build over centuries. Please tell us about embodiment and intelligence. I'm so curious about that. Well, <laughs> sure. I, I was going to go a little bit with a question. So like when we use chopsticks, they're basically an extension of our fingers. They become part of our body. So does, does AI and robotics have this? Is that what you mean by embodiment intelligence or mechanical intelligence? Oh, mechanical intelligence is a, that's a, I, I'm so glad you used that phrase. What I, what I mean by embodied intelligence is I just mean a sort of like anthropomorphic type intelligence, like an intelligence that would feel like a biological intelligence, even if it wasn't at a human level, whether that's a thing that uh, would be achievable without it being embedded in our complex world in some sense. There's a kind of sentiment implicit in the current 
moment of AI, which is that if we can just download enough data off of the internet, then eventually intelligence will pop out of that. And I don't really subscribe to that view. I, I think the opposing extreme view is that things like language and text are all epiphenomena of a system that's really just made to move, that the act of interacting with the world is mostly what your brain's about, perceiving and then turning that into action, and that everything else is sort of accidental in some sense. I think there's some truth in this, uh, in that we have evolved to deal with very complex stimuli and, and deal with a very complex environment. And a lot of what we can do really boils down to being able to solve these kinds of problems. And replicating large amounts of, of natural language, that is being able to look at a bunch of words and then predict the next word, is interesting and valuable, but it isn't interacting with the complex world in the same way. I sort of subscribe to a school of thought um, that is the goal should be less this kind of top down, like let's get good at chess and go and video games and natural language, but instead, you know, let's make cockroaches. Let's try to make successful little simple things that interact with a complicated world and are nevertheless robust. And maybe if we can figure out how to build a cockroach, then maybe we can figure out how to build a mouse. And maybe if we can figure out how to build a mouse, maybe eventually we can figure out how to build a dog. And if we figure out how to build a dog, we're pretty much done, right? <laughs> we're like most of the way there. And to be sure, I, I think we're a long way from being able to do that effectively. But this point of view relies heavily on the idea that embodiment is key for intelligence. And biologically, like biological intelligence, the brain co-evolved with the body. And your body is very carefully sort of designed in a sense, I'm using the word designed to, to mean that the, the sort of result of, of billions of years of evolution, uh, to interact with your brain in a kind of optimal way. And, and this actually does have a name and this, you use the phrase mechanical intelligence. And I, I don't know if you, you mentioned this, if you, if you said it with that intent, but this is the phenomenon of a body having structure, having morphology that makes it easy for a brain to control that somehow the body itself is actually relieving the brain of some of the computation that it would otherwise do. And this is in contrast to the way that we build robots now almost always, which is clever mechanical engineers and control engineers design a robot to make it kind of easy to manufacture and very precise to control. And then you come along later and you try to layer on top of that sophisticated system some kind of interesting machine learning, some kind of reinforcement learning to, so that it can empty your dishwasher or whatever. This is very different from a system where the design of the mechanism and the brain would happen simultaneously. But there's tons of examples of this in the natural world. So the design of our legs and hips, for example, really makes it easy to walk, such that there are robotics researchers who actually have studied completely non-actuated robots that can easily sort of walk downhill, passive walkers, they call these. So no control, no brain, no, elect you know, no electronics at all, and yet this thing can kind of easily walk down because the geometry of its legs is right. Similarly, our hands, you know, they're really made to grasp. They really kind of want to grasp things. So you pick up a coffee cup, you pick up a pen, or almost anything, your brain isn't spending a lot of its cognitive sort of energy modeling that object and thinking about all the contact points and all the, the many different muscles in your hand and how they're contracting. You just sort of do it unconsciously. And, and, this, and the compliance of your hand and the, and the sort of the spring constants and damping and everything that's going into your hand make it so that your brain doesn't have to think very hard. 
there's tons of examples of this. You know, you could take a dead fish and put it in sort of vortices of the right kind and it will swim. So the fish being dead, but somehow the mechanics and the geometry of its body make it kind of just swim anyway. So nature has designed the body to be very nicely coupled with the way the brain works. And yet this is completely different from the way that we design systems ourselves. So when I talk about being in the sort of camp of embodied intelligence, that's kind of what I mean, which is that we need to take seriously the idea that intelligence is a thing that kind of only makes sense in situ, in, in kind of actually in a complicated environment, interacting with it, and that the morphology of that body is going to have a complicated relationship with the resulting brain. And, this is, and, and I'm not alone in this view. This is a thing that lots of sort of serious people research. So, so that's what I mean when I talk about embodied intelligence. What comes to mind as you're talking about this is the sensory aspect of human body and decision-making process. Um, let's say pheromones, whether I like someone or not, are going to influence significantly how I feel about that person or how I make my decisions, whether I would do something or not, has a lot to do with the chemicals happening in my body that influence my brain. How do we consider this as we create robots systems, technology with intelligence? This is an interesting and deep question. So the idea of pheromones, right, of chemical signaling is something that we don't know how to model on any kind of interesting level, I think, not least because it's only been very recently that we've made any kind of progress at all on computational scent, for example. You know, you mentioned my startup wet lab. One of my co-founders of that has recently founded a company called Osmo that is about actually solving the computational scent problem and uh, sort of giving computers a sense of smell. So I think this is kind of a, uh, actually, it's a very exciting research area specifically. Now, if what you're getting at is the question of how does all this indirect signaling, whether scent or otherwise, influence the, uh, the way that we, that we interact with people, I think that's, I, I think that's also an, uh, an interesting frontier which is how do you understand context? How do you understand body language? How do you understand all of the subtle signaling that's going into communication? Again, we're, we're not very close to being able to do that with robotic, you know, artificial systems. Going back to how you describe, you know, when you reach for a cup, you don't have to think about it. But as humans, we actually did have to think about it when we were zero years old and we would pick it up and we didn't know how to do that. And we would lick it or, you know, sniff it and rub it. And we spent years thinking about how to pick it up. We don't remember any of that, but it was actually a kind of learning that we had to do with our bodies that informed our brains. So do you see a parallel with that in robotics and how, you know, I love the conversation of how uh, of embodiment that we really do need a body to have intelligence in this world. So where do we go with that? Yeah, that's, that's great. So that developmental learning is learning, right? It, is, it really is as much learning as anything else. I think the point I was making about grasping, though, is still true in the sense that babies, if you put their finger in their, in their little hands, right, will grasp it before they can do a lot of other things. And so there's not a lot of modeling of their, the baby is not, is not doing a lot of modeling of that, of that response. It's, it's nearly like autonomic. Mm -hmm. right? So that's the kind of thing I mean, right? Our hands want to grasp that even the baby can't smile, but it can still grab. But you're right. The learning of how the world works is incredibly important. And a thing that, um, that we in machine learning 
and interestingly conflate with evolution. So one of the things that is kind of confusing about machine learning as a field and, and that is informing all of this kind of like AI is when we say a system is performing learning, is it learning in the way that baby is learning? Or is it learning in the sense that it's adapting a system that more appropriately corresponds to evolutionary timescales? There's lots of things that the human body can do and sort of structures it has that you were born with, mm -hmm. right? So your retina and so on, the structure of these things, a lot of like when a machine learning system is trained to replicate some of those capabilities, many of the capabilities that it replicates are things that actually evolution solved, mm -hmm. not things that you learned growing up, essentially, or that your body adapted to in response to stimuli. Gotcha. So, so it's almost instinct or just our hands are this way because of millions, billions of years of evolution. Absolutely. That is a form of learning. It's not an intellectual learning, but it's a physical learning. Yeah. And it maps on in some ways to the kind of optimization process I was talking about before as the core sort of approach to machine learning. Just that optimization in some sense is happening over billions of years, not just in the sort of short lifespan of an individual organism. Are we patient enough <laughs> to have that kind of, don't you need time? Is time an, an element here? It absolutely is. And I think it's an open question of how hard it is to solve these kinds of problems. You know, evolution did take a very long time to design intelligence as we understand it. So it's, it's not at all obvious that we can expect to achieve intelligence on the kind of timescales that we would like to. That said, evolution is a, a very inefficient process for solving this kind of problem. You know, it's, it's random search and it's not actually optimizing. It's, it's more sort of weird thing in which really all that's being sort of optimized is, is the, um, you know, is survival and reproduction. And so it's not somehow aiming for intelligence, right? Uh, that's an epiphenomenon of, of trying to reproduce. Although it took a very long time, I, you know, the counter argument is that evolution wasn't trying to do that. And it, and to the extent it was, it was doing it in a really dumb, random way. So I'm of the opinion that, that it'll take a lot longer, but smart people can have very different opinions. <laughs> the way I've thought about evolution is that sort of it does select for what's quote unquote best. So we're back to the good and bad thing, but maybe what is now is not best. Maybe it's just what is now. Even define what now means is kind of hard in this in this situation. So I see what you're saying about maybe good and bad aren't necessarily the right framework to think about this, just sort of what works maybe. And then we come yeah. back to the ethics question of is what works, what should work, and who decides? Yeah. I mean, I'm not an evolutionary biologist, but I think this is something that they think a lot about, which is kind of what actually is the, like how to, how to think about the actual process that's occurring and what is actually getting selected. And it's not best, really. It's survival and propagation of genes. And, and, and that depends on the ecosystem that itself is evolving simultaneously. And having the capability or taking the actions to survive does not correspond at all to whatever the sort of our current ethical standards are for behavior. So lots of terrible things have happened on the way to our genes. And, uh, you know, that's a thing that just simply must be true. And so it's not necessarily helpful to put a moral valence on it, but it's worth considering that evolution doesn't care about ethics, I guess, is maybe a better way to put it. 
And people, I think a lot of the fear around AI is based on robots taking over. And so let's say a robot that has the ability to learn from its past, whether it's the past of all humans that came before it or its own lived past. Is there sort of a difference in that robot's learning versus just digital AI? I don't know exactly what it would be called, but in the anxiety that it provokes in people could be a negative, the anxiety itself, and could have negative effects the way we react to it may not be inherent in the AI itself, but in what humans choose to do in response to it. Is this a potential negative that you see, or or what do you see happening there? It is important to consider how humans interact with robots when you're building robots and solving these problems. That is the main objective, after all, is to build tools, and those tools are about helping humans do something. And so if it interacts negatively with those humans or frightens them in some way, then that, that seems clearly like not a thing that we that solves the problem. That all said, I think it, it is important to make sure that we are not extrapolating from science fiction movies when we are talking about actual science. That doesn't mean that people won't react that way because people will react how they react. But from a rational point of view, when we're thinking about actual risks, we should inform that with sort of uh, intellectualism and not Hollywood. But like I said, so there's two different things. There's actual risk, but then also a totally valid question of when you build a system that's going to interact with humans, uh, even if they got their impressions from Hollywood, that's still a thing that we need to, uh, that we need to consider. When you think of um, industrial revolution and how it influenced our societies and, and many jobs were lost, what is happening now in your mind? What can be the impact? Are we going to see similar effect happening in different areas? Absolutely. So the arc of technology has always been where some sectors of the labor market get displaced. This is whether we're talking about ice cutters and refrigerators or, or stagecoach drivers. The arc of history has always involved this and it will continue to involve this. I think what does seem a little bit different with things like ChatGPT is that generally speaking, it hasn't seemed threatening to very many white collar jobs. And this seems a little bit different in some ways. I don't think it's structurally different than other kinds of labor displacement. And that's not to say that it's good. I just think we have experienced this many times before and we have different mechanisms that we, you know, policies that we use to try to, to try to manage this. I don't think we should view this as anomalous, but we should take what we've learned from all the many other times that it's happened and apply them to this situation as well. Is this the technology that will free us and liberate us to be creative and artistic and have time with our families? Or is this yet another step? It's just another step. I don't think it's going to be liberating. And in fact, there is this sort of irony that I, I think is kind of, <laughs> kind of makes me deeply sad, which is that, you know, the, the first things that sort of in this kind of like AI thing that's happened the last couple of years in the public eye anyway, has been generative AI of things like images, right? So there's been this weird frustration, which is that sort of the first people it put out of work were like graphic designers and artists, right? Mm -hmm. Who it's our society's loss, right? To, to have done that for sure. As you said, I, I think we all hope that the outcome is that there's 
more time for, yeah, there is more time for creative pursuits and socialization and all the kind of the best parts of life. Automation has had that effect overall. If we compare like length of work days and things like that over hundreds of years, but this is not going to be the thing that suddenly makes the difference in my opinion. Shall we ask Ryan the really important question? Yes. Ryan, are we there yet? No. Care to elaborate? You have to elaborate first. (laughs) I want you to interpret that question. If I interpret your question as, are we there yet? As in, how do we have the ingredients to make anthropic intelligence? That is to say, to make intelligence that feels like human intelligence? I think the answer is no. There are too many things we we don't know yet. In fact, we don't even know how to define the problem yet. We don't even know what we mean when we say that. And when you think of uh, singularity? I don't think the singularity is a thing that actually makes sense. I know I keep saying the same thing over and over again, but the singularity is about an acceleration of tools, right? We use tools to make better tools. And that's a thing we have been doing for a very long time. And the idea that this becomes a lot, lot faster very suddenly, I, I don't think is realistic. I find it kind of weird to talk about the singularity when like I can't get my printer to work and my Sonos like plays like half the time it like it, you know it interrupts the song. I don't know. I, I just find it kind of weird to imagine a, a sort of a technological insanity when the actual tech uh, <laughs> environment that we live in is is sort of a bunch of things that don't work and somehow the increasing complexity makes them work less well. <laughs> Right, your TV used to always turn on, and now it's a smart TV, and half the time it doesn't work because it can't connect to the network or it needs to download an update. Somehow it feels like we're moving backwards, not forwards. <laughs> That's how I feel about the deep state. <laughs> there you go. Thank you, Ryan. We appreciate it. Thank you. It's a fun conversation. Jamie, that was a fascinating conversation with Ryan Adams. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, absolutely. His experience in so many ways and knowledge is fascinating. What are some things that stayed with you? I loved the conversation about embodiment and mechanical intelligence, and I'd not really heard it described in the way that he brought it up. And um, it's something that I've always struggled with with AI is that we kind of need our bodies. Our bodies have an intelligence to them whether it's in our hands or just the way we move, the way we smell, the way we interact with the world. And that's something that I've seen missing in at least my observations in the conversations about AI is it seems very cerebral and very digital. But this is a much more analog way to experience the world and that in some ways almost humanizes AI for me in a good way. I agree. The sensory piece of the conversation, talking about sensory and how we connect with each other, how we interact with each other, considering how the other person, what we feel, the feelings, the biology of our bodies. That was a fascinating part. When we talk about inference and how technology can understand what we mean and not necessarily what we say, that's where the sensory aspect comes in for me is you can see somebody's eyes twitch or you can feel heat coming off their body maybe in in a way. And so that's where we can understand the underlying inference there. So I'm I'm hopeful that 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 can sort of influence even though maybe AI doesn't have a good or a bad intention there, we as humans do. So if that can influence the direction that things go in in a way that's ultimately good for us and the world. I would love that. 
Fully agreed. Thank you, Jimmy. Bye. See you next time. See you next time.